A few years ago, um, I think it was on a Wednesday night, I had decided to just give a, a very basic lesson on the plan of salvation. Now, the plan of salvation is something that for those of us that have grown up in the church or if you've been a member for very long, it's something that I'm sure you're very familiar with. And so when I decided to give that lesson, it was with a little bit different of a focus than, than normal. Often when we give the plan of salvation at the end of the sermon, which we traditionally do, we, we are trying to explain the steps of salvation, the steps as we call them in order to be saved, to be forgiven of sins. And most of us probably think at that point that those words are meant for anybody in the audience that has not obeyed the gospel. Those are things that are meant for somebody who's not a Christian yet, so that they can know specifically what they need to do in order to have their sins washed away and be added to the church. And in fact, that plan, that, that, those steps are so important to us, not because we've created them, as hopefully we'll see, but so important that typically, again, our tradition is at the end of every sermon uh, that we give, we extend that invitation. And so one of the difficulties with that, though, is I think we go over it so often, and often so quickly, at the end of the lesson, that many of us here who are Christians, who have been to church for some time, we can probably quote the plan of salvation. You know, we can tell someone, if someone were to ask us, you know, what do you think I need to do in order to be saved? We would say, well, you need to hear, and you need to believe, and you need to repent, and you need to confess, and you need to be baptized. And we can, we can rattle that off very quickly. That's probably one of the first things we're able to memorize when we become a Christian, or even before we've become a Christian. And then many of us may even have a few verses memorized that we can throw with each one of those, those ideas to show why he, what hearing is about and to show why believing is important and that confession is commanded and that repentance and baptism are commanded. And that's all well and good. But I think that sometimes that's about as far as it goes. And we may have difficulty explaining to other people what these steps mean. And I know this from personal experience, especially when I was younger. I've had, I had times where I might be in a discussion with someone and they would ask me, they would say, what, what, what do you think about salvation? And I, I quoted what I knew. I quoted what I had memorized. I quoted what we said every single service. I said, well, you need to believe and you need to repent and you need to confess and you need to be baptized. And they would just kind of stare back at me like, what in the world are you talking about? And it took a few times of that to realize I need to be able to do more than just quote these steps in this plan of salvation. And when you take a step back and think of it, again, when we've been to church so much or for our whole lives or for decades after our conversion, we know a lot about what that means. But, but think about a person who's never really heard or a person who's just starting to have spiritual conversations or just starting to discuss the Bible Think about what you've said to them. You, you tell someone you need to believe. Believe in what? What do we believe? What, in fact, when the Bible talks about belief and faith, what's it even talking about? When we tell someone to repent, what's that mean? How often do you use the word repent in your daily vernacular? For me, it's zero. I can't remember the last time that I had a conversation with someone that wasn't a biblical conversation and I used the word repent. It's a religious word in English now. 
So when you talk to someone <clears throat> who hasn't got a religious background, what, do you, what are you asking them to do? What are you saying the Bible tells them to do when they repent? What about confession? You need to confess. What does confession mean? I, I'm convinced, I believe, that this is one of the most overlooked aspects of this plan of salvation, of these steps. What does it mean to confess? Again, in, in English vernacular, typically if you're talking about confessing something, what you're doing is you're confessing guilt, you're confessing wrongdoing, you're saying, yes, I am guilty of that. And there's an aspect of that in Christianity. You know, James tells us to confess our faults one to another. One of the songs we just sang talked about confessing our sins to the Lord. But is that what the Bible is calling us to do when we say you need to confess? We need to be able to tell people what it means to confess, and it's a very important part of the process. And why is baptism essential? What, you know, we can, we could give sermons, and many of us have given sermons about baptism, but one of the questions is, what does it do? Why is it a part of this process? What does it accomplish? And so originally I gave, I got this lesson up just as a simple study by way of reminder, not really for people who are not Christians, but even though it's simple and it's basics, as a reminder for those of us who are Christians, who often when we get to the end of that service, just use the, when the preacher starts writing the H and the B and the R up on the board, that's simply our cue to get out our songbooks because we're almost done with the sermon. And I'm not saying tonight that we need to spend every lesson, that we need to spend half of every lesson going in depth over the plan of salvation. I don't think that. But what I do think is that every one of us here that are Christians need to have a good understanding of what that process means, why those steps are important, so that we can discuss that with our children. So that we're not just telling our children when they get old enough that they need to, to follow these steps because that's what we do. So that when we're talking with friends or family or coworkers, and maybe even in a religious discussion that they disagree with us, that we can discuss why these things are important and what they mean. So that we can talk about what it means to believe and to repent and confess and be baptized. And I gave this lesson originally because I think that these steps still apply to us today. Even if you've been in the church for 50 years, faith is still instrumental. An attitude of repentance is necessary. Confession, I hope to show you, is something that is a lifelong change. And baptism, while we may not be rebaptized, we don't need to be rebaptized again and again. I think that there's a reason that many of the verses that we read about baptism in the New Testament are actually included in letters written to who? Christians who have already been baptized. There's a way that we should think about our baptism that helps us in our daily walk. So that's what I originally got this lesson up for. It's been a few years um, on a Wednesday night, so some of you may not have been here. Um, when I originally gave this lesson, I just kind of drafted it up and thought, well, we'll do this tonight, and I didn't really plan on doing much more. Uh, after that, I started giving this when I, when I go to meetings. I now, this is one of the main sermons that I give about every meeting that I go to, so I've reworked it and, and gone through it many, many times now. Uh, and so I hope to go through, I wanna go through that with you all this morning, and I hope that it's helpful in some way. If nothing else, I hope it gives you some things to think about. And so if you're a Christian, if you're one of our members, this lesson's for you. If you're here today and you've not obeyed the gospel, then I hope this helps you too. Obviously, we're gonna be talking about things for, for those that aren't Christians. And if anyone, member or non-Christian, have questions after this lesson or wanna study this further, please let me or one of the brethren know 
and we would be happy to do that. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 2. We're not going to read any real long passages in our lesson this morning, but I do encourage you to either take notes uh, or to follow along in your Bibles as you can. Uh, But we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2 because in Ephesians 2 we have probably the most succinct definition of salvation, the most succinct definition of how it is that we are saved. Now, you need to go home and read Ephesians 2 in its greater context. We don't have time to do that this morning, but we're just going to focus on Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 for our first verse. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, as I said, I need to underscore this. Please go home and read the fuller context of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 are are one section. It's an incredible passage. Don't skip verse 10. I know I stopped at verse 9, and that's where many people stop. Verse 10 is very important, but we're just setting the foundation for our thoughts. So Paul says, this is how we are saved. This is the simplest, most straightforward definition of how it is that we are saved. And Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith. Now, this is a very popular verse. Many people know this passage. And if you have discussions with religious friends from denominations, they will probably discuss this passage. They will, they will know this passage if they know their Bibles very well. That we are saved by grace through faith. Now, there's a few things that we need to talk about here. First of all, because um, I want to arm us with ways to talk with people that may use verses against us uh, or may twist or, or misunderstand verses. Because this is a verse that people know very well, and there are many people who will come to this verse and see, see, especially because of verse 9 that says, not of works that men may boast. They say, we are saved by faith alone. Now that is a huge jump from what the passage actually says. The passage does not say you are saved by faith alone. It does not say you are saved by grace alone. There are people that hold both of those views. Many of the people that hold the idea that you are saved by grace alone actually become universalist. Basically, God's going to save everybody. You may live a better life if you follow his instructions, but in the end, Jesus' blood is going to cover everyone. Everyone's going to be saved. That's universalism. It contradicts scripture. But many other people will say you are saved by faith alone. But notice that doesn't jive with this passage. Now, I'm not an, an English scholar, but there are some things that, that I think all of us here, whether we are highly educated in English grammar or not, can understand, and that is the word alone. The word alone means alone. It's one and only. It's by itself. That's all. And so when you say we are saved by faith alone, what about grace? To say we are saved by faith alone would take grace out of the picture. Now, I know of nobody in the religious world that would agree with that. And so what you'll often find, and especially in in circles uh, that follow a Calvinistic theology, they will often say, well, we are saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. And that sounds good, but it's actually just compounded the problem. Now you have three things instead of two things that you're saying we're saved by alone. If we are saved by something alone, we are saved by that thing. So we're either saved by grace alone, 
Well, we're saved by Christ alone, or we're saved by faith alone, but we can't be saved by and in and through all three things alone. And that's partly, that makes sense why the word alone is not in this passage. It doesn't say that in Ephesians 2. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Nothing there is alone. So what is Paul saying? Paul's showing us the two sides of the equation, if you will. It's not the greatest terminology, but it will work. The two sides of the equation of salvation. Grace is God's part. This is what God has done so that humanity can be saved. Faith is man's part. This is what you and I are responsible for in order for our sins to be washed away. Now, this helps us understand this passage because when we talk about God's grace, and we're going to give a very, very brief overview of this in just a moment, but if I were to ask you, what one thing would you call God's grace? What would you say? What is the one thing God has done to offer us salvation? Maybe you would say, well, well Jesus. Okay, well, that's a really big, broad answer. What do you mean by Jesus? Do you mean Jesus, the Word, eternal? Do you mean Jesus? Well, well Jesus as a man. Okay, but what, what did he do? Well, he, he died on the cross. Okay, he died on the cross. Now, if Jesus died on the cross but didn't raise from the dead, would he be our Savior? No. So the crucifixion alone is not God's grace. We realize, okay, there's also the resurrection, but without the death of Christ, there is no resurrection. And then back this up even further, well, Jesus had to become a man, so we have the incarnation. My point is, when Paul says we are saved by grace, grace is the simplest term to define all of the activity of God. Grace is the one word that is the best description of everything God has done. God has created us. God has made a way for us. God has, uh, you know, as Galatians talks about the fullness of time, he has worked through history. He has given us prophecies. Jesus became a man. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died on a cross. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus ascended to the Father. Jesus sent the Spirit. Jesus established the kingdom. All of these things are a part of God's plan and God's grace. God's grace is an umbrella term for everything God has done. Now, if grace is an umbrella term in this verse, doesn't it make sense that faith is also an umbrella term? See, many people come to faith, and we're going to talk about faith here in just a moment and, and all that that means in Scripture. But the key here is, this is not the one act that man does. This is an umbrella term that if you were to boil down everything that man must do in order to respond to God's grace... If you were to boil down all of man's responsibility into one word, just as Paul did with grace for God's work, what would the best word for that be? It would be faith. Now, we need to properly understand faith, so we're going to talk about that in a moment. But it would be faith. So this, is a, this doesn't mean belief only. This encapsulates everything that we do as Christians. This is everything that we do to become a Christian and to live as a Christian. So hopefully that helps you if someone ever brings this passage up and says, well, see, we are saved by faith, not of works. Well, we're not saved by works of merit, but obedient works would fall under faith, as I hope that we'll see. Now, we talk about grace. What is it that God has done? Well, we talked about some of those things he sent, uh, he sent Jesus, but I want to frame this in 
this lesson and these steps of salvation, this, you know, why we believe and repent and confess and are baptized, and the expectation of the people when Jesus came from based on the Old Testament. Now, if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, of course, you read there in the garden how Adam and Eve have sinned. They've eaten of the forbidden fruit. And there in Genesis 3, God begins to hand out, you might call them the punishments or the consequences of their choice to eat of that forbidden fruit. And he levies a curse on the man and on the woman. But as he's talking to the serpent, he says in verse 15 that from the seed of woman, there is going to come one who will crush the serpent's head. So that's the first prophecy in the Bible. It's the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. And we find that mankind has fallen. He has messed up his relationship with God. He has messed up his responsibility. But God has a plan to fix it. And that plan includes a Savior. We are looking for someone who will be born of a woman, so a, a human, a man, who will defeat the enemy. Now that's a very big, vague picture. And the rest of the Old Testament begins to fill in that picture and begins to tell us the history of how God brought that promise to fruition, how he fulfilled that promise. You get down to Genesis 12 and we meet Abraham. And God promises Abraham uh, in Genesis 12 and also in verse chapters 15 and 17 and then 22 that he is establishing a covenant with Abraham and that from Abraham, through his lineage, through his descendants, will come one who will bring global blessing, one who will bring worldwide blessing. So now that Savior focuses in. We know it will be a descendant of Abraham. But now God also told Abraham that his descendants will be like the stars in the sky. They will be innumerable. So we have the family, the nation, or the nationality, but that's still a lot of people. Well, time continues to progress, and I'm skipping a lot, obviously, but we get to King David. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David. And he says to David that from his sons, from someone from his lineage, will be one with whom God will establish an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will not end. Now, that was not Solomon. Solomon reigned for 40 years, but Solomon's reign came to an end. Solomon's son lost 10 of the tribes of Israel um, because of his foolishness, and actually because of Solomon's idolatry. And so those aren't the kings. But here's the thing. This is where it really focuses down. In the Jewish mindset, when they were looking for the Messiah, that is the one that God promised to come and save them, they were looking for a king who would establish a kingdom. Now, when we talk about Messiah, that, is the, that means anointed one, the equivalent in the New Testament, the equivalent in Greek is Christ. We're going to see that here in a little while. It means anointed one. In the Old Testament, you've probably heard this, there were three offices specifically that were anointed, the prophet, the priest, and the king. We've talked a lot about the priesthood of Jesus in our Hebrew study. Uh, Jesus' role as a prophet is mentioned in the early part of Hebrews. He is the final one through whom God has spoken. And those are very, very important. But predominant, especially in the Jewish mind in the first century, as they were longing for a Messiah, was a king. God was going to save his people through a king and a kingdom. And I think that's very important for us to establish in our minds and with others. And it begins to make these steps of salvation make a lot of sense. They don't be, they're not just arbitrary steps. You know, well, we read a verse that says we do this, so we do it. That's a, a good reason in some ways. But we find the meaning behind them when we understand 
that salvation comes through a king and his kingdom. And the New Testament begins to sh it shows us that. The Gospels show us that Jesus is this king that God had promised. And then the book of Acts shows us that the church is his kingdom that he established. And then the letters of the New Testament are letters to that church, to the kingdom, about what it means to live as citizens in the kingdom that belongs to the king of kings, that is, Jesus. But of course, as we talk about the plan of salvation, what we're focusing on is how do we become a part of this kingdom so that we are saved by this king? Well, it starts with faith. This is the beginning and the end in some ways. And what do we mean by faith? This is an important question. And when we talk with people, friends, neighbors, relatives, it's important that we make sure we're using the same words the same ways. Because you might say faith, and I might say faith, and we might be meaning two very different things, or at least subtly different things, and we need to be on the same page. Well, faith in the, in the Greek, I don't like to quote Greek a whole lot, I'm not a Greek scholar, uh, but Greek, the Greek word, the noun is pistis, or the verb is pistuo, those are the words that are found throughout. And like English words, it is a word that can have a variety of meanings, or at least nuanced meanings. And so we need to understand what it can mean, and then we need to understand what it means within a context of a passage. So what can the word faith mean? Well, it can simply mean what we typically think of, and that is belief. This is the idea of, basically, belief would be thinking certain things, or certain ways about certain things, believing a statement or something along those lines to be true. Um, for example, I might say, I believe that George Washington is the f was the first president of the United States of America. Now, I wasn't alive back then. That was 200-some years ago. So I wasn't around. But I believe that's the truth. What I'm saying when I say I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States of America is I think that fact is, or I think that idea is true. That's what I mean by saying I believe that. Now, why do I believe that? I believe that because that's what we've been taught. I believe that because from what I can tell from the historical records, that that seems to be a legitimate claim. And so I believe that. Now, here's the question. What does that really impact my life? Not much. Now, if I'm, having a, if I'm in a trivia game and I'm asked who the first president was, that belief may come in helpful. But it doesn't affect how I treat my wife, doesn't affect how I do my job, doesn't really affect anything about my life. It's just thinking that something is true. Now, there are many people that think that this is all that goes into faith. Like, there are people that, I've read of people who think that if you believe for even a, a, a second or two, if you have the thought, you know, I think Jesus was real, and I think Jesus did die on the cross for my sins. 30 seconds later, you could then say, no, I actually don't believe that, and become an atheist, and you'd be saved. Because you had belief, even for a moment. Now, that's not real common, but that is out there. That's, a, that's an ideology and a theology that's out there. Now, sometimes the Bible does use the word this way. For example, in John 8, verse 24, uh, in a discussion with various people, Jesus had told some individuals, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. 
Clearly, Jesus is speaking about something regarding salvation because he says, do this or else you'll die in your sins. If you die in your sins, you're not saved. And what did he say? He said, unless you believe that I am he. Now, what's he talking about when he says I am he? Unless you agree, unless you think, unless you agree to the fact that I am the one that, Jesus, that God promised to send, unless you think that, there's no way that you're going to be able to die free from your sins. You have to believe this. You have to accept that. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll read a couple of verses um, about faith from there. Now, we've gone over Hebrews, so we won't spend a lot of time in that. But Hebrews 11, of course, is that chapter that talks to us a great deal about faith. But Hebrews 11 verse 1, or Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, that's God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So we have to believe that there is a God. You can't be saved by God while actually believing He doesn't exist. So you have to believe. This is, it's used this way sometimes in the Bible. But this is not the only way that it's used. This word in the Greek and also in the English, I think we can understand this, it can also mean trust. Back up a few other, to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Notice those words. And also verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Notice how the Hebrew writer begins to define faith. He says it's assurance, it's conviction, it's something we understand. It's not just something that we believe in, it's something that we trust in. Over in John chapter 14 and verse 1, this is a, a beautiful passage that I know many of us love and cherish. Jesus on the night before he, or the night that he was betrayed, that final conversation that he was having with his disciples, he gave them some words of encouragement. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Some, tra some translations have you believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, or would I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now what's Jesus saying here? When he's telling his disciples, who are already vexed, and they're about to get a whole lot more vexed, when he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Is he telling his disciples, think a couple of facts? Agree with some things that you've heard about God and about me? No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying is, you trust God, trust me. Why do I think that's the case? Because what's he saying? He's saying, if I go, I will come again. You believe that to be true, but you also trust that to be true. It's something that you can have assurance of. It's something you can place your faith in. So I mentioned the example of, of George Washington. We can use other examples. For example, what about aliens? You know, UFOs and extraterrestrials, or if you watch much of the news, you know, there's been more discussion about that. Are aliens out there? And sometimes you'll hear people say, I believe in aliens. And if you believe that there's other life in this universe, I don't really have a problem with that. But if you believe in aliens, what does that mean? 
That means that you think that there could be life on other planets and other places in, the, in this universe. Have you ever heard someone say, have you ever said, I trust in aliens? Do you put your assurance in aliens? Does the idea that aliens might exist give you any form of conviction for your life? No. That's just a belief. That's just a thought. But faith goes further than just a thought to conviction. And it goes even further still because this word can also mean loyalty or allegiance. There's a book that I read about the idea of faith, and this author, who is a Greek scholar, who is, knows Greek and knows history, made a point that there are records around the first century time uh, of Roman centurions. Now, Roman centurions, of course, were the backbone of the Roman military. They were over 100 soldiers. And they have records where Roman, Roman centurions demanded pistis. That's that word that we always find in the New Testament for faith. They demanded pistis from their soldiers. What do you think that Roman centurion was not asking but demanding of his soldiers? Do you think he cared if they believed in him? Doubt it. Do you think he really even cared if they trusted him? Nope. He was demanding their loyalty. He was demanding that when he oversaw a battle and he saw a spot of the fighting that he needed to send some soldiers to, and he said, you go over there. Even though it's dangerous, even though you could get wounded, even though you might die, you obeyed him. You did what he said because he was over you. That's loyalty. It's faith. And in a kingdom concept, faith has that meaning. It is a loyalty. It is an allegiance. That's why it's one of the fruits of the spirits. And many translations there in Galatians 5 will translate, you know, after goodness and kindness and faith, at the end of that will be faithfulness. It's the same word that's typically translated as faith. But most translators recognize faithfulness has a bigger picture. Because faithfulness takes on a new meaning, doesn't it? Faith, we might try and boil down to thinking something. Faithfulness gets into action. And we do use this vernacularly in a certain way. For example, if you were to ask, if you were to ask me, Nate, are you faithful to your wife? If I were to ask you, are you faithful to your spouse? What are we asking? Are we asking if you believe that your spouse is your You know that they're your spouse. Are you asking someone if you trust your spouse? Well, hopefully trust should be in our relationships, but that's not what you're asking, is it? You're asking, are you loyal to your spouse? Do they hold absolute sway of your allegiance? Are there things I do because she is my wife, and are there things that I will not do because she is my wife? That's what tells you if I am faithful or not faithful. And that's what tells you if you're a Christian or not a Christian. Are you loyal to Jesus? Are you faithful to Jesus? 
Are there things you won't do because Jesus is your king? Are there things you will do because Jesus is your king? It's a much bigger picture than just belief. Now, when we have this type of faith, so we hear about Jesus, we learn about him, and we believe those things, we think that we can place our trust in him, and we're ready to be loyal to him and to give him our allegiance. What does that lead us to do? Well, in the New Testament, we find that what that leads us initially to do is to repent. I'm going to need to move this over here. And repentance is the foundation of kingdom preaching. In Matthew chapter 3, as Matthew opens up his gospel, the first two chapters tell us the genealogy and birth of Jesus. Chapter 3, he begins talking about John the Baptist and John's preaching. And he tells us in chapter 3 that when John came preaching, he came preaching with the message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And when Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, after he's been baptized by John, he goes into the wilderness, he's tempted after 40 days, and he returns, and he begins preaching. And guess what Jesus is preaching? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And repentance is an important subject. In fact, that word repent shows up in the New Testament over 50 times. Over 50 times we're taught in some form or fashion about repentance specifically. Now what does that mean? Again, as I mentioned, that's not a word that we use frequently. Well, the idea, the, the word repent, the Greek word, basically means to change and to turn around. So it is, it's an internal concept that has outward results. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. So you can think about it like when you're driving down the road. If you were driving to church, whichever direction you come from, and you know that you're supposed to be here at 1003 Springer Road, let's say you're coming from the north, and you, you just pass us by and you keep going. And you realize that you've passed the church building. And you know you're heading the wrong direction. What do you do? Or you change. You decide that you need to turn around and come back. Now, if you recognize that you've passed the building, and you believe that you've passed the building, and you believe that you're going the wrong direction, but you keep driving south, what good is that going to do you? None at all. You're just going to keep driving further from where you need to be. But if you decide to stop and turn around and begin traveling back this way, you can get to where you're going. That's a simple, kind of silly example, but that's the idea of repentance. When we hear the gospel, when we hear Jesus' teaching, it is going to convict us. We're going to see there are things, there are attitudes, behaviors that I have that are wrong, that are sinful, that are contrary to God's perfect holiness. And I will change my mind about living that way. And I will decide it's time for me to begin living obediently to Jesus. And thus, I will begin to change my behavior. Now, by the way, this is something that doesn't, we don't just say, yeah, I'm sorry for the things I've done and get baptized and that's it. Repentance is a part of the Christian's life forever. We don't have time to study the whole passage, but over in Acts chapter 8, we read about as the Christians were fleeing Jerusalem and they went and they preached the word wherever they went. We're told specifically about a man named Philip who went and preached in Samaria. Now, there was in this area a man named Simon who had been a magician, and people were very wowed by this man's magic arts. I don't know what that all entailed, trickery or what. 
Uh, but when Philip came, and Philip was able to preach, and Philip was able to do some miracles also, the people listened to Philip, and they were amazed by the gospel and his power, and they began being converted to Christianity. And Simon was one of those converts. Acts 8 tells us that Simon believed and he was baptized. And there's nothing in that passage that indicates that that was a false belief, that he wasn't actually converted. But what happened to Simon? Well, as the, as the more and more Christians are being, are being made, Jerusalem hears about it, and Paul and John come down from Jerusalem, and this is a side study in and of itself, but they come in order to lay their hands on these new converts to impart spiritual gifts, miraculous gifts. Philip couldn't do that. He wasn't an apostle. Now, these people were able to be saved without miraculous gifts, but these miraculous gifts were going to help them in the infancy of the church. Now, when Simon sees Peter and John get there, and he sees these men are able to lay their hands on someone, and now they can speak in tongues or lay their hands on someone, and they can perform healing, he's impressed. And not only is he impressed, but he has a, a, something happen to him that every one of us who are Christians can sympathize with, his old ways that he had decided to leave behind weren't quite so behind as he thought they were. And those old desires came back. And we're not told exactly what he wanted to do with the ability or that power, but some part of him thought, I want to do that. And so we're told that he offered money to Peter. He tried to buy the ability to impart spiritual gifts. And this is what Peter said to him in verse 20 of Acts 8. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. I think it had been right before God, but he let temptation get the better of him and now it wasn't. So what should Simon do? Peter says in verse 22, Repent therefore of this wickedness and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Now Simon would answer in verse 24, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Peter shows us, and John talks about this also in, in, in 1 John uh, 1 through chapter 2, when we have obeyed the gospel, we've become Christians, but we let sin back on us. We stumble again. We sin again. What do we do? Do we have to get baptized again? No. But we do have to repent again. Every time we see our life is going in the wrong direction, we change our mind, and we change our actions again. We pray to God about it. We confess those faults. It's appropriate if we want for other people. Sometimes it's good to confess our faults with one another, as James instructs us to do. That's why we say sometimes at the end of the lesson, if you want to come and make a confession so that you can have, that's not a matter of shaming as though, you know, it's a big sin and so you need to feel a lot of shame in front of these people. The goal of that is you have all of your Christian family here to pray with you about that. Much like Simon said, pray for me. Simon could have said that prayer, but he wanted Peter to pray with him and for him. And sometimes we need that. And so we come forward and we say, I need forgiveness, this is what I've done, and I want my brothers and sisters to pray with me and for me about that. That's a part of the rest of our lives. We don't leave repentance behind just because we've been dunked in some water. We have an attitude of repentance always. But also, we come to this idea of confession. What does this mean? This is often skipped over. Often we quote Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33. I've stopped doing that because I really don't think Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33 contextually is about the confession. 
of salvation, the confession, the good confession that we're talking about in this process. I'm not faulting, I've, I've used that many times in the past, I just don't think that now, because that is just simply acknowledging Jesus. That's talking about whether we're courageous enough to, to confess him, or whether we're, shamed, we're ashamed of him. But what does the confession mean? Well, there's two stories that I want to look at, and I know that we don't have a lot of time, so we'll have to go through them quickly. But in Matthew chapter 16, you might remember, that's the place where Jesus asks his disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the other prophets come back from the dead. Those are all very impressive things, but none of them are the truth. And so then Jesus says in verse 15, who do you say that I am? This is one of the passages, if you remember Jonathan Edwards, when he was here, he used this passage and he made that point every night. He said, what you think about Jesus matters. Who you think he is matters. That's very true. Who do you think that I am? And what does Peter say? In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is so important about that? By the way, Jesus said, Jesus blessed him. He said on this, that this foundation, this confession. And I don't think that statement, but the meaning of that statement is what Jesus is saying the church will be built on. What is it that Peter has just confessed? That Jesus is the king. Remember, Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah, which refers to the anointed one. And the first thing in a Jewish mind in the first century when they thought about the Messiah was who? The son of David, who would establish an unending kingdom. And amidst all the turmoil and turbulence of Jesus' ministry and the accusations and all the difficulty, Peter says twice over, you are the Christ that's a messianic confession, the son of the living God. That's a messianic confession. It's a twofold statement that he believes Jesus is the king. Now, for a Jew to say that, you know what that also means? If Jesus is his king, that means he is his Lord, his ruler. And Peter is saying he is subject to Jesus in totality. This is one of the reasons I think that we have struggles with this, because we're Americans. I don't mean to be offensive about that, but the truth is, Americans don't have a great respect for kings, do we? The reason there is an America is because we didn't really like the idea of a king, and we never have. We want a say in government. We want people to represent us and serve our interests and if we don't like the job that they're doing, then in a few years we'll kick them out of office and we'll put someone else in. That's not how a monarchy works. In a monarchy, you have a king. In a true monarchy, you have a king. He has absolute power, and you are under him. And guess what? The church is not a democracy. It is not a democratic republic. It is a monarchy. And when we make the confession... We are doing more than just verbalizing what we think. We are swearing allegiance to this king. He is our Lord and ruler, even when things aren't exactly how we want them to be. Another example is in John chapter 11. John 11, of course, is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus gets sick. Jesus, the, the sisters Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. But Jesus waits. 
Lazarus dies. Jesus doesn't show up till four days later. And when Jesus does show up and Martha hears, Martha goes out and we don't, again, have time, but this is a fantastic conversation. Martha comes out and she says to him, if you had been here, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I go back and forth. I don't know if that's an accusation. I don't really think it is. I think she's just simply stating this could have been different. But even now, because in verse 22 she says, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Those should be words of comfort, right? But let's be real about this for a moment. Have you ever sat beside the graveside of someone very close to you? Some of you here have lost spouses, parents, maybe children. And as you're standing by that grave and someone comes up to you and they say, don't worry, you'll see them again. I get that that's supposed to be comforting. But in that moment, in that gut-wrenching moment, is that really all that comforting? Does that take the sting away? Does that take away the pain of loss? No. It doesn't just wipe it away. And yet Jesus seems to be doing it. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, and I imagine I can hear some frustration in her voice, maybe. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And I'm like, why are you saying this to me? I know that. And then notice that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in you, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I don't know about you, but I would feel very uncomfortable having a theological discussion with somebody who was literally grieving over their newly dead brother. We often back off and we give people space when they're grieving, not Jesus. And not only, Jesus doesn't just have a theological conversation, he questions her faith. Because he then says, do you believe this? You ever gone up to someone that was grieving the loss of a sibling, a spouse, a brother, a close loved one, and asked them if they really had enough faith? I've never been brave enough to do that. But Jesus was. You know how Martha responded? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She matches Peter and ups the ante one. You are the king, you are the king, you are the king. And why is that so important in this context? Because up to now, she doesn't know Jesus is getting ready to raise her brother from the dead. He has not given her what she wanted. She is in pain, she is suffering, she is sad, but he is still her king. Despite all that. People that want Jesus to be their king while, they are, while things are going well, but reject his kingship whenever things don't go their way, were never loyal to him in the first place. And this is what the confession is really about. It is swearing allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King. That's why in Romans 10, I believe verse 9, Paul says that if you confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's not about an equation, it's not about a formula. Now, often we, we use the example of the Ethiopian eunuch, which is a good example. 
Very often when we're getting ready to baptize people, we go through that process and we quote that story and we say, what do you believe? And we expect them to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Check, we've got the confession. That's a good confession if we know what it means. That we are giving our allegiance to Jesus the King. And this is so very important. Sometimes I'm asked, I'm dealt, I'm, I face situations, people say, how do you know when someone should be baptized? Sometimes people say, I want to be baptized, and we certainly don't want to discourage that, but do we know that they're ready? How do we know that they're ready? First of all, we may never know, we don't know people's hearts. But here's the one thing that I think we can say, and, and we're not trying to discourage people, but we need to make it clear. We're going to see in a moment, when you obey the gospel, you're becoming a citizen in the kingdom of Christ. That means you're acknowledging that Jesus is your Lord, that he is your king. That means you're going to obey him. And you don't know everything about it yet. You're not a New Testament scholar. You don't know all of the rules. You don't know everything. That's why Jesus says you make disciples, you baptize them, and you teach them all things. But there's, I guess, two types of people. There's the type of people that really want forgiveness of their sins, but they don't want Jesus as Lord. These are the types of people that get baptized, and then a few weeks later they're gone. Or they get baptized, and then later they learn something about the way the church works or about what the scripture says, and they say, I didn't sign up for that, and they leave. And then you've got people that obey the gospel, and then every time they see that the Lord demands something of them or rebukes something in them, they change. I know a man um, who, when he was younger, was looking for a church. He was going to different churches. He had a friend who was in the church. And so he, that friend had invited him, studied with him, and, and finally one, time, uh, one day he, he obeyed the gospel. He was convicted. And a few weeks later, um, this man who was a new convert had to work on Sunday, and so he went to work. And he missed the assembly. And his friend called him up a little bit later and he said, hey, we missed you this morning. Where were you? And he said, oh, well, I got called in, kind of an emergency. My boss needed me to work, so I went to work. And his friend, to his credit, did not get all over him and yell at him, but he said, we need to talk about that. And so they got together and they studied their Bible. And his friend showed him that he's not supposed to forsake the assembly. The Lord expects him to be at services with the saints on the Lord's day. Now that man could have said, every week? I'm supposed to be here every week? I'm supposed to jeopardize my job, perhaps, for church services? That's not what I signed up for. That's not what I think should happen. I'm done with this. Thankfully, that's not what he did. He said, I didn't know that. I'm so sorry that I did that. And I will never do that again. And he never has. You know what that is? That's loyalty that causes him to repent because he is allegiant to his Lord. When people are truly allegiant to Jesus, they'll accept the way that we're supposed to worship. They'll accept the morals that they are supposed to practice. It will take time. It will take growth. We're all still growing. The question is, are we really loyal to the king? Well, Lastly, and I know you're probably worried because this is where we spend most of the time, but we're actually going to talk about this briefly. So why do we talk about baptism? What's the purpose? Now, we could go through scriptures that show that it's commanded. We could talk about 
many aspects of baptism. But what I simply want to focus on is what it does for us. Because notice these things, as we have this type of faith, what we should have seen is there is change that takes place. When we repent, there is a change of mind and action. Our confession is this verbalized commitment, an oath, if you will, of the change of allegiance. What is the change in baptism? The change in baptism is status. Think of that image. Again, we don't see this unless it's on TV or in a book or something. Think of a king that has conquered a new area. And these new people under his control are brought and they are going to be his subjects if he accepts them. And so they come before him and what do they do? We maybe seen this again in, in television. They kneel before him and they swear allegiance to him. What they're saying is we, we trust you to be our protector, our provider, and we will be loyal and obedient to you. Does that make them citizens in his kingdom? No. Not until he accepts that oath and he accepts them as a citizen do they become his subject under his provision and under his care. And we may believe in Jesus. We may even change our lives. We may even think of him as Lord. But when do we know that he has accepted us? That he has forgiven us? That he has drawn us into his kingdom? The scriptures make it clear that it's when we have obeyed and been baptized. This is when we become a new creation. This is when we are raised to newness of life, Romans chapter 6. This is when we experience the new birth that Jesus talks to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. This is when the old is taken away and we become new. An example from common day that maybe makes sense to us. Think of immigration. And I don't mean this politically at all. I'm not interested in political discussions about this. But historically, America has been a place where people have often come from other countries. They hear about the possibilities, they hear about the opportunities, and they want to come and be a part of this country. And so they leave their old homes, their old lives, and they come here. But as we know, you're not supposed to just come in. You're supposed to go through a process. This is an official country. It has a governing body. And it has rules about how you can become a citizen. Now, you may believe in the American ideals. You may even move here. You may even act like an American. But if you've not gone through the immigration process, you're not a citizen of the United States of America. And you don't have all the rights of a citizen of the United States of America. So you can do all these things, but until your status is officially recognized and changed, you're not a citizen. But once you go through those steps and you follow the procedures and the government says you are now a citizen, that status is changed. And this, by the way, is why it's important to you and me today, even if we've been baptized decades ago. Remember, I, I made an allusion to this. Many of the passages that we refer to about baptism to show why it's important are written to who? Christians. Romans, written to Christians. Colossians, written to Christians. Galatians, written to Christians. First Peter, written to Christians. 
Why did the apostles write about baptism to people that were baptized? Because what a wonderful reminder of who we are. Let's think about the immigration example again. Let's say someone has come, they've become a, they've become a citizen, but then they break the law. And they end up in court, and the judge asks them, he says, why did you do this? What if that person were to say, well, back where I come from, in the country that I used to belong to, uh, the country where I came from, this wasn't illegal, this wasn't a problem. What do you think that judge is going to say? But you're not a citizen of that country anymore, are you? You're a citizen of this country. And you enjoy the rights and privileges of this country, which means you obey the rules and the laws of this country. You don't live like that anymore. You live like an American citizen. And on a much grander scale, that's what it means to be in the kingdom. And if I am living in a way that is not right, that is not becoming, that is not obedient to the King Jesus, you have every right to say, Nate, weren't you baptized? Oh, yeah. What's that mean? You realize that when you were baptized, you were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, right? Absolutely. And why aren't you living like it? Why are you living like a citizen in the kingdom of darkness when you belong in the kingdom of Jesus? You changed, Jesus changed your status because you gave him your allegiance. Live like it. Now, how would you describe that? See, this is, this is not the end. Baptism is not, we are not once saved, always saved. It's not that if you're baptized, everything's good. You continue to live like a citizen under in obedience and loyalty to King Jesus. How would you define that type of life? A faithful life. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus said to his people, And be you faithful until death and I will give you a crown of life. As I mentioned, it begins where it ends. Faith, faithfulness, that's what our life is. That's going to include baptism, but that's not all it is. It's a life of loyal allegiance to Jesus. That's going to be obedient, that's going to be penitent when we go astray, that's going to be doing everything we can to be loyal and to glorify our King, to be faithful. And so in the end, we see that we will be saved by God's grace through our faithfulness to King Jesus.